truth, goodness, and beauty. We all agree that these topics are necessary and vital for education, but how can we access them? How can we provide them to our students? That's what this show is all about. On this season, we're going to sit down with Memorial Press staff, educators, and family to talk about truth, goodness, and beauty in classical Christian education. Welcome to season three. We're glad you're here. As always, our show is sponsored by Memorial Press. You can find our curriculum at memoriapress.com. Welcome to Classical Etc., a show from Memoria Press that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. All right, well, welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. I'm sitting with some of my friends, Ian, Tanya, and then a special guest, Lee Lowe. And this is the first time we've been able to have you. And I feel like there's something about being a curriculum director and having five kids that has made it hard for me to get you <laughs> seated at this table. So thank you for making some time. Thank you so much. I'm trying to get my five children through the curriculum, which uh, causes my absence from this table. So, <laughs> That's understandable. so on today's episode, the where we are headed is this is an episode where we're going into the wardrobe, as they say. And we're going to be talking about Chronicles of Narnia and Mere Christianity because these are books that lie kind of at the heart of what Memorial Press does. Um, there's something specific about the fiction of Lewis and especially Mere Christianity and the ideas that he develops there that are really important for us as a company. And Lee, the first question I would ask is that recently over the past several months, you have asked the staff of Memorial Press to read the Chronicles of Narnia of all books, not educational philosophy <laughs> books, not you know theories of how to better do this or that. You've asked us to read fiction what is it about these books that are so important to you and important, not just to you, but for us as a company? Why would you ask us to dive into these? Well, I think these books are just a perfect example of a lot of what we strive to do and be as a company. Um, I think Lewis is obviously a classically minded individual. He's a brilliant man. He is a devout um, Christian who is mission-driven to spread his faith to the broad world. Um, and I also think that his ethos is so admirable. He comes to um, his cause with civility, with intelligence, with humility. And I think that that is the thing that makes him so appealing and has made his books so interesting and accessible to so many people, his voice, but also the books themselves are just masterpieces. I mean, they are beautiful. They are true. They are good. Um, they are everything that I think we are trying to exalt as a company. And I think Lewis himself is an individual that we can um, admire and esteem to emulate as well. Yeah. What, what, what that, about Listen, <laughs> that all sounds great. But I think she made us read them because I told her I didn't like fantasy fiction. <laughs> Which is important. That is, that was an important reason because I think that Fantasy literature, children's literature is so important. And I think that getting people to think in a metaphysical way is such an important part of education and part of the education that we are um, putting forth. And so I want you to love fantasy. <laughs> I want you to love things that are unseen. I'm, and so I'm trying I'm to train along. you. I'm coming along. <laughs> Lee has trained me. Yes. So Lee, is that the same reason why you've chosen for us to read the Chronicles of Narnia and not the Space Trilogy or Till We Have Faces or something like that? Well, 
You know, I think that that's part of the humility um, in classical education. I mean, I think if we're honest about you know, what we're doing, we can come to it as an amateur, as Lewis himself did in producing mere Christianity. I mean, that's what he says at the very, you know, beginning of the book is that he comes to it as amateurs because he knows that there is always more to learn. And that really is the essence of classical education is, you know, um, we are trying to recognize what we don't know, mm-hmm. Socratic wisdom. And so I think that um, we start at the beginning. We start with our children. We start with the books that we want our children to learn. And, and, and in those books, there is so much goodness and consistency. And, um, you know, I think that we shouldn't take for granted the the books that we are giving our children as a foundation so that we also ourselves can continue that pursuit of, of education. Sure. So, Ian, you're like me in that we've come to the house that is Memoria Press <laughs> right? as, as visitors, but have found a home, whereas we, we didn't build the house like Lee. What have you found during being a part of these book discussions um, that has resonated with you and do you think is an extension of our spirit as Memorial Press? Yeah, I, first of all, I didn't need to be convinced uh, of (laughs) of loving fantasy. I come from a family that loves fantasy. And so I myself have loved fantasy for, for so long. And the Chronicles of Narnia have been a story that we've told each other. We've watched, I mean, we've watched the BBC version. Uh, we, we've gone to plays. And so we love these stories. Uh, and what I found is that um, Memoria Press is a very ecumenical place. It's a place where a lot of us, we come from different traditions, but we can come together and we can come around a certain key things. Your Christianity, what, what, is the, what are the facts of the faith that we have to believe? And that's what Lewis is doing throughout the Chronicles of Narnia is he's teaching children the most important facts of Christianity. These are what must be believed. And even in our, even in our diversity of views on other things, uh, we, we can work together and we can work together in a common mission to, to spread this kind of thinking to our students and to anybody else who's willing to listen. Yeah, and before we sat down, Lee, you mentioned that connection about the ecumenical spirit of mere Christianity and the Chronicles of Narnia. What what is it that resonates with you about C.S. Lewis's vision and and Memorial Press's mission? Well, I think that you know, again, in Lewis's humility, he says that he is um, he is not shying away from his beliefs beliefs, um, but he is you know bringing people to a great hall. Um, connected to many doors and he he has a lot of patience and um, 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 just understanding for people who are traveling that hall and he says that you know different doors might be selected but our mission is to pray for everyone in the hall and he just wants to get everyone in the hall and I think that that is you know a, the way we view um, classical Christian education we understand that everyone's not going to do it exactly the same way. Um, But we think that it is good. And to exalt those things, truth, beauty, and goodness, we just want to get everyone in the hall. Um, And, you know, then we understand that there are going to be um, unique unique differences in, in individual families and individual schools. But, you know, we want to exalt the first things. Mm. So Tony, it's well documented on this show and elsewhere <laughs> that you're not a huge fan of fantasy, but you have expressed some appreciation for these books. 
and you seemed you said that you're you're moving. So what's moving the needle for you? And and how are you coming to love fantasy more and more each day? Well, I wouldn't say I'm coming to love fantasy yeah, more and more question. each day. Like I'm not going to start reading fantasy as a genre, but I ha- I do have an especial appreciation for these. And I've talked before about Tolkien and my appreciation of his his mastery of the word. Um, but I still feel like I could live without orcs. Um, these are, the every, more I read them, the more I see how, uh, how connected they are to truth, beauty, and goodness. And how, you know, for a child, like we were talking before it started about the, the lunatic liar, um, or is Jesus really who he is that's in here? And then, you know, there's that moment when in here, when Lewis does it with um, with Lucy, and it's the same thing, but it's on a level that a young student can understand, whereas you, you're not going to hand mere Christianity to a young student. So I do see that. I do see the beauty in it and oh. the really the, the expertise. Yeah, I, I love that too. And for people who are listening who maybe aren't as familiar um, C.S. Lewis has this argument in American Christianity where he says with the fantastical things that Jesus was saying in his life, there's really only three options about him. Either he was a liar and nothing he ever said was true. He was a lunatic and he was crazy because he was calling himself the, the bread of life or everything he said was true and he was Lord. And there's this great section in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where the children are complaining about Lucy to the professor and saying, She's making up these things she, and, and the professor, you know, he's kind of this paragon of wisdom. And a lot of people, I think, right, think he represents Lewis himself, right? Lewis sees himself as the professor says, well, you know, Lucy's character, either she's a liar, she's a lunatic, or she's telling the truth. And, I, and it's just like a really clever way that he kind of plants that seed of that apologetic argument. Yes. That the then eventually they will see in mere Christianity. Mm-hmm. Right. So it all just connects so well for students. And they all, you know, by the time they would be able to read that. Now, my husband read these to my children when they were quite young. But then when they did it again in school, they were at the point where they could see all of the allegory mm-hmm. and really recognize it and and appreciate it on a level that they couldn't just, if it weren't fantasy, right? It gives such visual, I think, um, it's just such a visual representation right. of Christian apologetics for the students. I mean, I think, and what I think is brilliant about the books, I mean, obviously, um, Lewis is such a well-educated man, but he he is the details. I mean, I think that's one of the things that classical education has really done for me um, in terms of the way I read a book. I mean, as a child, I used to read a book for the story arc and the characters and just the very broad things. But now when I read, it's the individual sentence that counts. And every sentence in these books is meaningful and and memorable. I mean, I, you know, I think when in Horse and His Boy, when um, Shasta is learning to ride and, um, you know, it says, well, you can't ride. Well, that's okay. It's okay that you can't ride. But can you fall? Can you fall without crying? And can you mount the horse? And can you fall again and get back on the horse? And, you know, the individual words with such specificity, 
stick with you. And so that's what's so beautiful to me about these books is the consistency of the ideas. I mean, the idea of pride and every character who is proud in this book says basically the same things. They care about efficiency. They care about commercial prospects of new lands. Mm -hmm. They think the rules don't apply to them. They, you know, they, um, they exclude themselves from the expectations of the common person because they have exalted themselves to such a high degree. And the consistency of Lewis in putting those ideas forth in very visual ways is very, very helpful, I think, to the and, child and the adult reader. And then in here, what does he say about pride? Pride is, oh, the, my right, right? pride is the sin. It's the, the original. Right, of course. Sin. Right. Yes. It, and you can see those, you can see that so clearly in his characters. Um, and I think it opens our eyes to see that in the world. But as important, I think it's imp- it helps us see those vices and sins in ourselves. Mm. I mean, I think it I, I think that's the thing that is so beautiful about these books because in a, in a very sort of encouraging way, Lewis is asking us to convict ourselves mm. of these faults. Um, and he's always encouraging us that yes, you can turn around. You can turn around. These characters are turning around even with these sins and these temptations and the things that they're experiencing. It's, it's almost as though he's conveying the goodness of truth beautifully in all of his novels, which brings mm-hmm. together the three kind of pillars of what we're trying to educate students with in a classical education. Right. They really That's, are brilliant. I mean, they really are. Um, you know, another thing that he talks about, which always I think about classical education in um, some of his villains who, who aren't always um, villains throughout the entire series, but some of the characters with bad traits, you know, he talks about their pursuit of practicality. Mm. And he'll say explicitly, they're so practically minded. I mean, the fisherman father and um, um, and the horse and his boy, boy, right? He didn't know what was in the northern lands and he didn't care. He didn't have wonder. And, you know, when Uncle Andrew goes into the new lands, he, he pursues the commercial viability. And so they're looking for the materialistic things. And so Lewis repeatedly shows us that practicality as opposed to beauty, even in the way they speak in the different worlds. I mean, in some of the worlds, they speak with maxims. In some of the worlds, they speak with poetry. And so consistently, Lewis is pointing us, I think, in the direction of our education if we are alert to those things. That's another thing that stood out to me most recently in reading Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is the consistency of these themes. One that's always stuck at, stood out to me is there's this great book by a guy named Joe Rigney about understanding some of the virtue in in the Chronicles of Narnia. And he talks about King Loon, I believe is his name, in Horse and His Boy, who is first in, last out, laughing right. loudest. And it's just a great a great statement for how what a, a person should, should be. But you have that same first in, last out idea. Aslan tells the you know Peter in... in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm-hmm. And that just these different themes do kind of crop up mm-hmm. over and over again, which leads me to a question. It's hotly debated what order you should read these books mm-hmm. in. There's the publication <laughs> order, right. starts with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there's a chronological order with the one that most people are familiar with. Re- reading recently, Magician's Nephew and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it struck me that there were some things in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that didn't seem to premeditate the magician's nephew. It's, you know, even with the way he describes the queen later on. So that made mm-hmm. me think maybe there is some justification for the publication order. Ian, you have a strong opinion on this? I do not have a strong opinion. I probably grew up knowing the line, the witch and wardrobe first. Mm-hmm. So I kind of by default have gone in the 
the publication order, though I've read it in the chronological order. I mean, it's one of those things. It's kind of like Star Wars. Do you begin in four, five, and six, and then go to one, two, and three? You know, and there and there is there is something classical about that in media rest, beginning in the middle of things, in the middle of the story. Um, but I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say and see if I can Donna, you piggy, have an piggyback off that. I, you know, I really didn't have an opinion, but um, when I was looking back through the magician's nephew to refamiliarize myself with that particular story, when I got back to the end and it was, there's just this sudden awakening, like, oh, this is the professor and this is where the wardrobe came from. That was like an aha moment, I think. So you would lose that mm -hmm. if you don't yes. know There's the significance beauty. of the mm -hmm. wardrobe when if you read The Magician's Nephew first. So, but I really, I think you can go either way, I think, and not be wrong. You'd also lose, you know, the white queen is is just the, mis the mystery around her character and Edmund's mm -hmm. false beliefs yes. become very apparent in Line of Wardrobe, but you lose some of that drama if you don't connect her to Queen yeah. Jadis. In, in I'm a real big... I mean, I do not like, I'm not a fan of prequels. I like to read books in order. I like to read authors in the order that they, like if I read Evelyn Waugh, I try, I like to start at the beginning and just watch the author either become better or worse. And and so here, ideally in my head, I would, would want the magician's nephew to be first. And I noticed they put it first. The publisher puts mm -hmm. it first in on the spine. I didn't realize that till I looked at your spines. No. So I don't know. I don't. Do you Lee, have what opinion? do you think? I don't know either. I don't. I just think read the books. Just read <laughs> yeah. them. Just read them. Read them yeah. again and again and again. So, um, you know, I think they are all so valuable, and and I I do not have a strong preference. That is not a battle that I would take on. <laughs> but there, you know, we it's up to our teachers. So we do the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in our curriculum. We never do the Magician's Nephew in the curriculum, but the third grade teachers do have the option of reading it to the students as a read-aloud. Mm. And some of them say absolutely not, that they need to read the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe first. And others think it's a nice, so, you know, it really is just, sure. it's not going to ruin the experience either way. So if yeah. you have a strong preference, yeah. that's, that's fine. Go with it. So we have specifically chosen Line the Witch in the Wardrobe to be in our curriculum. And then we've written recently guides for the magician's nephew. Are there plans for more for the rest of the series? We would love to always to do more. I would love to complete the series. I would love to complete the Tolkien series. Um, it's just a matter of time. So then take me back when Mrs. Lowe, Lee, Tani, when you were deciding that Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe would be, you know, we, we haven't chosen a lot of books to be required reading for our students. So each mm -hmm. one of these have been elevated to a pretty high level of importance. Do you guys remember those conversations about what it would, why you put it into the curriculum and what were the reasons it was chosen and not others? She was a huge fan of Lewis um, and Chesterton. And, um, you know, I do remember talking with her about um, our senior apologetics course and those, you know, um, Chesterton and Lewis were non-negotiables to her. Um, and so I think that it just made perfect sense to introduce that. Absolutely. So 
of those two books, I think it may be helpful for anybody listening who maybe hasn't taken the plunge, hasn't read these. Let's go specifically into The Magician's Nephew and Line the Witch in the Wardrobe. And I just want to hear you guys talk about what you appreciate from these two novels, the things that stick out to you. You know, Lee's been mentioning some things anecdotally and then connecting those to the mere Christianity when you're able so that people can see just mm-hmm. how, how much depth there is in these children's stories. So let's start with The Magician's Nephew. Um, what are the things that stand out to, to you guys? I'll start with one. Lee, you mentioned this, but Uncle Andrew's um, thinking he's above the rules and, and the, the, science, the science kind of uh, the, the uh, using everything yes. kind of trope. Um, and then the way that that's contrasted with the queen who just completely dominates him, it, it, it struck me as very comical this time around. Right, right. I think, um, you know, they're, they're such true representations, but also such characters sure. as well. You know, I think that, and, and you can see these characters in visual ways. I mean, you can see, I mean, you can see Uncle Andrew just swooning in temptation. And, you know, I mean, all of the mm-hmm. things that, you know, just give give meaning to those things in such visual ways, mm-hmm. I think. Um, something I love about Magician's Nephew is Cabby. And I love... Mm-hmm. Um, and and if you look, if you follow along in all of the Narnia books, this is something that I've been trying to to think about. Um, you know, you can see every time Aslan speaks, his words are so important, and he says things with such concision um, and such such truth and beauty. And so I think you know, I think that's something really to pay attention to every time Aslan speaks. But also his instructions to his leaders. I mean, he is showing his people how to be noble, sons and daughters of kings. You know, that's a very common um, idea that a lot of very smart people have talked about. (laughs) I can give you lists. But, you know, Aslan is telling, he is instructing his children how how to be um, good. And so, for instance, anytime any of his characters are exalted into kingship or queenship, you know, he he tells them specifically, will you, you know, will you be first mm-hmm. in battle and last in retreat? Will you treat your people with justice and mercy? Will you be kind and forgiving? You know, you know, will you persevere to good ends? Will you be courageous? And I think that that's really, you know, I love seeing Cabby, for instance, um, uh, and his wife exalted. And I love, um, uh, that's the first in Magician's Nephew, that's the thing that's really meaningful to me and kind of the idea that I attached to um, as going, you know, in going through the rest of those. Yeah. Can I, can I piggyback yeah. off of that? <laughs> yeah. Because I, I think that's one of my favorite uh, themes uh, throughout Narnia as well. The, the exaltation of the human, of the individual um, that, that Lewis portrays through, through Aslan, who is the Christ figure who exalts us. And so uh, I love to watch as these people, this Cockney cabbie right. who right. doesn't even sound educated, but yet is full of, of mercy, courage, and tenderness. He becomes the first King of Narnia. He's the one that Aslan exalts. And Aslan's doing the same thing with the animals. He takes some from the animals and exalts them and makes them talking animals. Mm-hmm. Aslan always makes us who we are. And in and in The Magician's Nephew, he even gives to the talking animals, he says, I give you yourself. Mm. And that mm-hmm. to me is just one of these beautiful things. It's also in Mere Christianity. These books illustrate what it is to be a Christian 
and how to live as a Christian in ethics, in morality, but also metaphysically, how we are actually becoming more than we were. Mm. And you see that also in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, because it's the queen, it's the the white witch who turns everything into stone. She makes everything less than they are. Mm -hmm. And she makes Edmund less than he is to the point where they're calling him beastly. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of them Mm -hmm. are using words like you beast, you, you, you poisonous beast but it's Aslan who comes back and restores him. And then when he says to Peter later, as Peter is having to run off and go kill the wolf, he says, oh man, and he makes him who he is. And so I love that exaltation of the human, of every living thing in Narnia to more than what it is, which is the glorified state. Yeah, that's really well said. Um, I have a question for you about magicians. Okay, Okay. (laughs) go ahead. So at the very beginning of the book, Mm -hmm. the narrator says the story happens when you're grandparents were children who who's the narrator and mm. and who's who is he talking to interesting what time I, period I, I was <laughs> i was just taken aback like what you know i think he's probably talking to 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 his contemporaries because i took it as i mean you, had, you know professor kirk shows up with the pevensies later on which is what after a kind of a in the middle of the war, is that it's correct? In, right. Yeah, because they've been sent away from London. In, because in World War Two, right. And so I'm taking this as even pre the great pre World War One, okay. uh, maybe going up into that because he even says later on when he's talking about um, when he's warning, I think the Narnians. Um, we also get some warning ourselves when he says there are going to be those nations who are going to rise up. There are going to be tyrants who are going to want to do more than they ever should have. Yeah. Uh, which, and he, he's talking about the Nazis. He's talking about those who rose up and were tyrants. So I think that's who he's talking to. Wouldn't that make the professor really ancient by the time of the line? That well, he's, the he's a child at this stage. Mm-hmm. And so he's a child there. And I think he is pretty old by the line of the witch in the wardrobe. I mean, he has gray, right. gray hair. He's retired. He's retired. So who knows? I mean, I'm sure somebody knows. Tony, <laughs> <laughs> what about you? What stands out to you about the magician's nephew? Well, I, just on the same lines as what they just that um, of what they've already said, that um, that characterization mm. of Aslan, who I mean, it is so Christ-like and um, especially his empathy for um, people who have done wrong mm. and um, and want to do better. And just, you know, I don't remember where it is, if it's the magician's nephew or the lion, the witch. It's the lion, the witch. Where, you know, where he kind of restores Edmund. Yes. And then says, there's no need to talk about this anymore. Like, mm. it's the past. Mm. It's gone. I've healed it. And so everybody else needs to give him the same kind of treatment that I am giving him. And I thought, I mean, that is speaking to all of us. Mm. And, and then in the magician's nephew, you know, when, when, when his Diggory's mom is dying and, and um, Aslan tells him, you know, how to help her, but still, you know, that he had tears in his eyes, Mm. that he was grieving alongside, you know, that stuff is so important, just the thought that, you know, we tend to, when we are grieving and when something awful has happened and we are, we're despairing and think, why didn't God do something about this? Why weren't my prayers answered? Just that thought that, that God is grieving alongside us and just things like that, that, you know, those are life-changing things. And he just characterizes all of that so well. Yeah. 
in that lion character. Well, and and I think that's so important for kids because kids learn by analogy. Yes, they learn by analog. They need to see who God is through the figure of something they they know, which is a lion. I mean, my my daughter who's four loves big cats right now. Right now we're playing snow <laughs> leopard and cheetah and puma all the time. She's going to know how majestic and powerful a lion is. Mm-hmm. Yes. More easily than how majestic and powerful God is, whom she can't see. That's yeah. right. And so to to give them the magician's nephew and to see the big tears in Aslan's eyes is to realize God loves us like that. Mm-hmm. And Lewis is so clever and eloquent in the way that as he characterizes Aslan, he always kind of goes in a direction slightly differently than you would expect, you know, saying things like he can't be tamed. Right. 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 And and those little characterizations speak to knowing a God who can't quite be described and trying to fully grasp your hands around the mystery of God is Mm -hmm. usually a mistake. That's right. I think he really affects that through Aslan. Oh, I do too. And their whole, all of their different reactions to him Mm -hmm. when they first see him are just, they're totally human reactions. I, I love that. In The Magician's Nephew, I love how Andrew, Uncle Andrew, basically cannot see, cannot understand Aslan. He makes Can't himself deaf right, right. to the singing. Yeah. Right. And it's because of who he is and not just who he is, but what he's chosen to be. Mm. Right. His will has turned him away from Aslan. Whereas those, the cabbie, who, who's Frank, Diggory, and Polly, they, they come to love Aslan. Because they can hear him and they can right. see who he is. Right. I, I love in um, I can't even remember where, and it said, and it describes Aslan um, in a moment of fear. Um, you know, it says, but it's so nice to have something um, warm, warm and big at your back, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And I just think that's such a beautiful. I mean, the individual words of you know. In, in that book. And I think if you collected all the descriptions of Aslan, you know, mm. it would be just such a beautiful tapestry of how we perceive God in mm-hmm. different circumstances. Yeah. So Magician's Nephew, great, great book. <laughs> Go read Check. it. That's yes. right. That's what about right. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? What do, you, what do you all love about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? I feel like we've talked about, I feel like it's all yeah. the same. It's, um, one of the one of the things that I think that I love about all of Narnia, but I think you first see it in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is it. You actually see it in The Magician's Nephew, probably even more. But let's go back to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Is that the very the very land of Narnia is more real and more life giving and more energizing? Mm. The air, mm-hmm. and that's a, that's a theme you see throughout. That the air kind of strengthens them. It makes sure. them uh, something something more than they are. And I love seeing that in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, how they, like I said, become exalted, but also um, become more, I mean, Edmund becomes Edmund the Just. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. how powerful is that, that? That the traitor, the treacherous one, becomes the just. And so um, the very land itself, the very story itself, everything is is pushing you towards uh, preparing you for what happens in the last battle, further up, further in, going Don't into two, tr- the true country <laughs> right. of Aslan's country, which will be more real than even ours. And that desire that C.S. Lewis implants in you, that he also brings back in mere Christianity, is something that's affected me as a kid to make me long for my true home, heaven. I think that 
something kind of, again, piggybacking now on you, um, I think that that idea of battle and mm. journey mm. Um, and taking a difficult road is such an important theme in all of his books. And I think that the way that he encourages his characters to accept that what is good is not always safe yes. and discomfort is part of it. And there will be hardship and it will be a struggle, but it is worth the journey. And I think that repeatedly in showing just what you said, that journey to something good that is something you know words cannot express mm. and that um you know i think that that is just something that's so important to have in your soul that you know as we're journeying the journey itself is a challenge but it is so worth it and he does mm -hmm. that so well in all of his characters um you know in just showing showing that that battle um. One thing that stands out to me in Lion, Lewis, and the Wardrobe that I've always loved that I think speaks to Lewis's uh, ability as a fiction writer um, is that scene where the Pevensey children have been hiding and they come out and there's Father Christmas. Mm. And you have kind of two things yes. there. One is he's always interweaving mythologies of other other, you know, so there's satyrs and back, he mentions mm -hmm. the Bacchus might right. show up right. um, and then Father Christmas, but then also the children being given specific gifts for each one of them. And this is a, a trope. I feel like you see in a lot of fiction where these implements or objects that are specific to the characters, they become associated with them. And so as a kid thinking of Susan with her bow and Peter with his sword, there's something very special about them receiving those gifts. And I think it speaks to the part of each one of us that want to be known through the gifts that are given to mm -hmm. us and the way mm -hmm. that people know us well enough, they can give us an object that speaks to them knowing us. And I think he just, that's just expert craftsmanship from right. him as a writer right. to help right. me love these characters more. Yeah. There's something about that that bothers me though. What is it? When, um, when Edmund is injured and Lucy won't, when she's trying to heal him yeah. and won't leave, and Aslan says, do more people have to die because of Ed Edmund or something like that? Yeah, I'm really fair. paraphrasing. Um, I don't know. It, I'm just like, what is the point here? Is that, what are we supposed, what is that telling us we need to do? You think that it's speaking towards the fact that to do moral good for others sometimes means putting aside our own personal feelings. Well, maybe I just don't like yeah. that thought at all. <laughs> yeah. So no. <laughs> I, think, I think that's one of the main themes in this book though, is that sacrifice mm. is necessary. Yeah. I mean, we see, you know, that's, that's just a constant expectation um, and, um, yeah, I love in Horse and His Boy when, um, you know, they have to sort of lower their appearance, um, in order to escape the horses and, um, they have, they needed to roll around in the mud and, you know, and the children needed to wear rags to, so that they wouldn't, um, look noble. And Bree says, wouldn't you be so embarrassed to, um, to arrive in Narnia in this, you know, um, this low way. And Huynh says, but the point is to arrive, yeah, you know? And right. I mean, I just think that, I think that that, that theme in so many, so many examples just of, that's a, that's a minor sacrifice to make, right? But it's, that's a constant expectation of the journey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that, that it is a difficult section 
Um, but I, but the more I think about it, the more I do think it is, it is sacrifice and it's, it's thinking of yourself less. And I think that's the big point. But of she was thinking of her brother. She was thinking of her brother. She was, but she's also nervous because she loves her brother. And there's, there's others who are dying who are also maybe brothers and, mm. and sons. And so it's, it's, I think that, um, that call to, to, to forsake ourselves. Leave your the father and your mother. For, for, for like the magician's mm -hmm. nephew, you don't take the apple for yourself, like Queen Jada, like Jadis does, right. and then she becomes tormented by that that apple. Instead, you do it for the sake of another. And I think Aslan's gently calling, maybe not gently, gravely calling. I thought it was pretty Lucy, grave. Pretty grave, gravely calling Lucy to to forsake herself. And that's also the story of Edmund. Edmund is all in on on the White Witch. Until he realizes that she doesn't offer him anything. She just offers him stone and iron bowls of crusty bread. And yet when he sees her turn that little, the, the foxes and I think the mice into stone, Lewis says it's the first time he started thinking of somebody other than Feeling himself. Feeling sorry for somebody other than yep. himself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's the key is that mm -hmm. you've got to get over yourself. Right. Lewis says in all of his books, I mean, you know, it's not about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself not at all. Yeah, I mean, just forgetting right. yourself. And Which so, you know, that, you know, it, it is. It's a yeah. radical notion. And so to introduce students to that, I think, is, you know, beautiful. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's just his apologetics just woven so beautifully into these stories. Can't think of any better reason why everyone should read these books and study them when they're right. kids. Well, thank you guys for this conversation. It's been really enjoyable. Thank you, Shane. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.